There's a story of a young lady. She's just newly married. She calls her mother in tears. She says, Mom, my husband does not appreciate anything I do for him. I'm trying to prepare him our very first Christmas meal together, and we ended up in a big fight. Now, now, her mother said, I'm sure it's just all a big misunderstanding. Tell me what happened. She said, well, I bought a, I, I bought a frozen turkey roll, and I got home, and he yelled and screamed at me about the price. For a turkey roll, the mother said? What a cheapskate. Those turkey rolls only cost a few dollars. No, mother, he wasn't upset about the price of the turkey roll, the young girl said. He was upset about the cost of the airline ticket. He's, he's upset about the, the airline ticket that I spent. Airline ticket, the mother, the mother said, clearly confused. What on earth did you go out and buy an airline ticket for? Well, mother, when I went to fix it, I looked at the directions on the package, and it said prepare from a, from a frozen state. So I bought an airline ticket to Alaska. You get it? Frozen state? You're a little slow, but you're worth the wait. I'll wait on you, all right? <laughs> we could have put Wisconsin in there, amen. Well, there you go, your joke of the day. I know that you are blessed now. You have come, you've, got, you've received what you came for. Just a couple more quick announcements before we begin. A big week, weekend coming up next weekend. Next weekend is our great toy giveaway. And look at this, we have... This, is, this isn't even all of them. If we were going to put out everything on our stage here today, our poor musicians wouldn't have had anywhere to play with the baptism and everything. So we've got more toys backstage that we're going to line it up. We've got 200 bags of groceries that we're going to be putting out this year. We have more than 1,000 toys that are wrapped and ready to give away. Isn't that amazing? What, what you guys have done, you guys have done all this. This is, you guys have given, you've given food, you've given toys, you've given financially. And so now we are going to bless hundreds and hundreds of kids next weekend because of what you have done. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm believing that next weekend many souls are going to be added to the kingdom. And that's why we do this. We give away toys. It's a tool to get people in the door so they can hear about the, they can hear the message that will change their life forever. I believe we're going to see hundreds of people stand to receive Christ next weekend. Don't take that moment for granted. I remember the first event that we did here in Green Bay and hundreds of people, some of you remember that, hundreds of people stood to receive Christ. And I was told that we had volunteers in the back that were watch, that was watching that and they were literally in tears because they had never seen anything like that before. They'd only seen that kind of stuff on TV. Some Christians will go all of their life and never get to experience something like that, the miracles that God is doing right in front of us. So I just, I just want to encourage you, please don't take it for granted because it's just it's easy for us, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself here, just to chalk it up as another day, and then we lose, we lose sight of the miracles that God is doing in front of us. God has truly blessed us to be able to witness the miracles that we are witnessing here. So get ready for that. That's next weekend. The following weekend, December 20, I'm sorry, let's back up. The December, Friday night, December 24th, it's our Christmas Eve service. You heard, you heard about that on the announcements. It starts at five o'clock. This is one of my favorite services of the year. It's a family service, only an hour, candles, carols, and communion. So make sure that you join us for that. And then the following weekend, December 26th, we're going to be starting, I heard a lot of churches are closing 
closing down. They're not going to be open on December 26th, um, which is the day after Christmas. We will be, we're going to be starting a brand new series as we head into the year, new year called Closer. And I'm going to be laying out the details of our 40-day prayer and fasting that we do every year. And I'm just believing that this next year, 2022, is going to be the year that we, not only as individuals, but as a church, draw closer to God than ever before. So make sure that you are here for that. You won't want to miss one week. Okay, the announcements are finally over. Let's get started. We've been in a series called Movement 2040, and we're going to be wrapping this up today where we have been revisiting our vision as a church over the next 20 years. We're using the acronym of FAITH to lay it out, F-A-I-T-H. Just as a reminder, the letter F stands for Feed and Clothe the Hurting. We talked about the impact that our clothing closet and food pantry has had on our community, especially during the pandemic. Everything took off during the pandemic, and we have literally to the place now where we've outgrown our building. I talked about that. The letter A stands for answer the cry of our city. We talked about going after the kids and the youth of our city because if these young people will surrender their lives to God through the power of the Holy Spirit, they will break the curse off of their family and change their family tree for the glory of God. The letter I stands for invest in the kingdom. We talked about getting debt free as a church, but also helping you get debt free. The letter T stands for train leaders. Our goal with the letter T is to have a college campus or campus campus extension right here at this church one day where people can come and not only get their college degree but get hands-on ministry experience while they're at it. And that brings us to the final letter and we're going to, again, we're going to wrap this series up today, the letter H. The letter H simply stands for heal the broken. To To get this started, I want to explain why this part of the vision, the vision to heal the broken, is so important, not only for the future of our city, but for the kingdom of God. So to explain this, I want to read a very popular parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10. If you were here three years ago, you might remember this. I I went over this, this general theme, this general truth. Uh, three years ago. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start reading at verse number 25 this morning. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. If you don't have your Bible, we're going to pop it up on the screens, and you're more than welcome to follow along there. So here we go. I'm reading from the NLT. This is what it says, starting at verse 25. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live Well, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus replies with this story. He said, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him for dead alongside of the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road, and he passed him by. 
A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. Verse 35, then the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. And verse 37, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Father, for the next few moments, I ask that you would give me the mind of Christ as we unpack the letter H in this vision. I believe this part of the vision, God, is probably the biggest part of the vision. I believe it's going to take the longest. It's going to require the most amount of people. It's going to require the greatest miracles. But you are the God of miracles. And so, God, today I'm preaching this message by faith. I know I've started to see the wheels turning already, but I'm preaching this message by faith because it isn't going to happen but unless you intervene and so, God, we just we surrender our vision, our plans to you, and we thank you today. It is my prayer through this truth today, God, that people, that we would all leave this place challenged and changed from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin to break this down. So an expert in the religious law walks up to Jesus this individual was a part of a group of people that would have been known as the theologians of their time. So they're experts as it relates to the Old Testament, to the law of God. Their job was to take the law of Moses and apply it to the everyday, everyday life of the people. So kind of like, a, like I'm doing now, it's like as a pastor, this was their job, I'm doing now, it's like as a, that's what they did. He comes up to Jesus and he asks him the question of all questions. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Instead of answering the question, Jesus turns to the expert and he asks him for his point of view. Basically, Jesus said to him, you are the expert, you tell me what it says. The expert responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 and Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, which says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agrees with his response and he says, do this and you will live. Now at first glance, understanding what's happening here, this is a bit confusing because it would be confusing that Jesus would actually agree with this guy because it appears that he is confirming a salvation by works doctrine. Loving God and loving our neighbor is works based. Both of these conditions require us to rise up and meet a certain standard in order to receive eternal life. It's works based. For instance, let me illustrate it this way. We're going to pop a scale up on the screen there. On a scale of 1 to 10, 
a works-based religious system, says that you have to achieve the level of 10 to receive eternal life. And this can apply to anything, but in this case, we're talking about loving God and loving our neighbor. So in order for us to receive eternal life, I have to love God at the level of a 10, and I have to love my neighbor at the level of a 10, which makes total sense, I get it, but that brings me to a question, and this is the same question we would all ask. How do I know if I'm hitting the goal and reaching a 10? I mean, how do I know I'm not really a 6 and I think I'm a 10? How do I know I'm not an 8 on the scale? The truth is I don't know. What is the standard? That is a works-based religion. I could actually be a 10, but because I have no way of knowing I'm a 10, I'm going to keep trying and trying and trying. Works-based religion is suffocating. There is no joy, and you will always feel like you are falling short. You'll always be wondering if you're good enough. And it causes us to walk around with all this guilt and all this shame that I have to be this certain kind of person or God won't accept me. And I didn't realize this years ago when I first went through this vision, but I know this now. With Catholicism being so deeply rooted here in our community, there are many people, and I've seen this, that are walking our city streets with no joy because they're not walking in true freedom. They can't because they are bound to this works-based religion, and therefore, more often than not, they are carrying this tremendous amount of guilt and shame. The Bible is very clear that we are not saved by our works, but rather we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by faith, by our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, for by, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Nothing you can do. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's where we get into becoming self-righteous. We begin to boast in our works. So it's clear we are saved through faith, not by works. But in here in this passage, it actually appears that Jesus is defending salvation by works. So let's talk about this because it's very important. Take a look at James chapter 2 and verse 14 to see how all of this works together. It says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, remember we're saved by faith, if you say you have faith but you don't show it through actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Verse 18. Now, someone might argue some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe in one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Verse 21. 
Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute's another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Verse 26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also is faith dead without good works. So here we see the relationship between faith and our works. Even though we're not saved by our works, as we read in Ephesians, our works are evidence of our salvation, as we see in James. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 17. He says, a good, fr- a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. You can identify a believer, a true believer by their actions we identify trees by their fruit if i'm looking up at a tree and i see apples growing on the tree what kind of tree is it an apple tree it's not a trick question if i see oranges growing on the tree what kind of tree is it it's an orange tree jesus in the same way says that we will know if a person is a true follower of christ not by what they say but by what they do by their actions by their works so many people claim to be a follower of christ but then they walk around and they live for the world there's no difference between them and the world and i've talked about that before The thing is, unbelievers look at that and they say, I don't want any part of that. They say one thing, but they do another. They don't practice what they preach. There's no difference between them and me. They say they love people, but I don't see see them doing anything to really help people. And a lot of churches fall into this category. We say we love people, but we don't do anything to truly help people Jesus said this in John chapter 13 and 35 he says your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples did he say that we will prove it by our words no he said we would prove it by our love for one another through our actions through our works you see our good works are true evidence of our faith in Jesus Christ it's the good fruit that Jesus was talking about Meaning this, I say all of that to to wrap it up with this one statement. When we truly surrender our life to Jesus Christ, good works will naturally follow that. Not because we have to, not because we're trying to earn our way to heaven. Good works will naturally follow a true conversion to Jesus Christ, not because we have to, but because we want to. 
It's all about relationship. So here when Jesus agrees with the expert in the law, he is not supporting a works-based religion, but rather he is confirming the fact that the fruit of our salvation or the proof of our salvation is the fact that we truly love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we love our neighbor as ourself. A lot of us have no problem loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, but loving our neighbor has been a bit difficult. But this is the fruit that we will see from a true Christ follower. So the expert hears this response from Jesus, and he instantly begins to, because he's works-based, he instantly begins to measure himself against both standards. So he goes back to the scale we showed a few minutes ago, and he measures himself on that scale of 1 to 10. In his mind, as he's an expert in the law of God, he figured that he has obeyed that first one well enough. But keeping the second commandment depended on how Jesus defined the word neighbor. So he asks Jesus to define the word neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Jesus, I want you to tell me who I need to love. Who's my neighbor? And so to answer that question, Jesus goes on and he tells a parable or a story. He says, a man's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked and he's robbed. Now this road that connected these two cities, Jerusalem and Jericho, was roughly 17 miles long. It was a very dangerous road, and it was known for crime and robbery, so it's not unsurprising that Jesus would use this road as a backdrop to this story. Because of the extreme risk of danger, people rarely traveled this road alone, uh, especially if they're carrying goods or valuables. They would typically travel in convoys or caravans for safety. So here is this man, this Jewish man, laying on the side of the road, broken and beaten down. If someone does not care enough to help him, he is probably not going to make it. He's probably going to die. Both a priest and a temple assistant pass by and they see the wounded man. Now, priests and temple workers would have been frequent travelers on this road as they would serve in in the Jerusalem temple on a regular basis. When they see the man, they cross over, they don't just pass him by, they cross over to the other side of the street, completely ignoring the guy, and they keep walking. Now, we're not told why exactly they didn't stop and help, but I can just imagine some of the thoughts that were going through their mind, excuses of why they can't stop and help him. Because these are the same excuses we use today in regards to why we can't stop and help someone in need. There's many excuses that we use, but I'm going to boil it down to four basic root excuses. The first excuse we use is the excuse of fear. They're walking along. This road is much too dangerous for me to stop and help. It might be a decoy for an ambush. How many times do you and I pass by a need out of fear that helping that person might put us in some kind of danger? I've heard of people not, willing to, not wanting to help someone that is bleeding just for, the, just for the fact that they might have some kind of a blood disease. 
So we don't help a lot of times because of the excuse of fear. The next one is the excuse of time. These guys are traveling down. Wow, look at the time. I've got to get to the temple and perform my service for the Lord. How many times do we pass by a need because we're bound to the clock? This is one that, the, that, that God has to continually work with me on. Many times it's for a good reason. We're doing good things, but we just don't have the time. The third excuse is the excuse of personal lack. Well, I don't know first aid. What help could I possibly give them? Besides, I'm only one person. That job's too big for me. There, I, I, that guy laying alongside the road, there's, I, I, I can't help them. How many times do we pass by a need because we feel like we're not good enough or we're underqualified? Let someone else that's more qualified help. And then the last one is the excuse of blame. We've seen this a lot in 2020. He brought this on himself. He shouldn't have been on such a dangerous road in the first place. How many times do we pass by a need because in our minds that person's just getting what they deserved? They took the drugs. They overdosed. It's on them. They made a bad choice. Let them deal with it. Excuses. Charles Spurgeon said this, I never knew a man refused to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. There's always going to be a thousand excuses of why we cannot help the hurting. And they're going to be good excuses a lot of time. But God wants us to throw every excuse out the window and display the fruit of a follower. He wants us to walk out our faith by loving our neighbor as ourself. So the two, man, the two men walk him by, passing by. And along comes this third man, a Samaritan. Now to understand this, the Samaritan and the Jews, they're enemies. These aren't buddies. They're enemies. If anybody should have passed the man by, would have been, it would have been this guy. That would have at least made sense. The first two don't make a lot of sense. This one would have made sense. The interesting thing about this parable, as Jesus is explaining to this guy who a neighbor is, is the fact that he doesn't say that Jews should love all people, including Samaritans. He actually does something more shocking than that. He uses an unclean Samaritan as an example of what neighborly love is all about. And by doing this, he reveals the main point he's trying to communicate. You see, Jesus doesn't want us to ask the same question the man was asking. That's the wrong question. He doesn't want us to ask, who is my neighbor? Because that's a question that's designed to exclude a certain people group or a certain kind of person, a person that believes a certain way. I don't have to be a neighbor to them. Jesus doesn't want us to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Rather, he wants us to ask the question, who can I be a neighbor to? Because this question doesn't exclude anyone. This is a question that includes everyone. Everyone is a neighbor. Every age, every race, every people group is a neighbor. If we ask ourselves the question, who can I be a neighbor to? It eliminates the excuses for helping people because now we are looking for the need. We are looking for people to show the love of Christ to. We are looking for the hurt to heal and we are looking for the person that needs to be loved 
The people of this city will never know the true love of God if we just sit behind the four walls of the church and talk about it. The people of the city will know the true love of God when we begin to walk out our faith, finding the biggest needs of our city and providing solutions to those needs. It's through action. It's by answering the question, who can I be a neighbor to? We can be a neighbor to anybody that needs help, to anyone that's hurting, to anyone that's broken, to anyone that's bound by addiction. And that's where this part of the vision comes in, the vision to heal the broken. What if we had a place where the broken could come and get their life restored? A place where people could come and they could learn to dream again. What if we had a safe place where battered women could come to? What if we had a place where the foster kids that are aging out of, their, out of the system, many of them turned away on their 18th birthday with just a garbage bag full of their belongings. What if we had a place where the drug and alcohol addict could come and be set free and rehabilitated for the glory of God? What if we had a place to care for our veterans that have sacrificed for our country, now many of them struggling with things like P- PTSD and other things that many of us will never understand? What if we had a place where we could rescue young men and women held in sex slavery and help them rebuild their lives a place for the down and out a place for the broken a place for our neighbor understand something here only Jesus Christ has the power to change a life the only true hope people have for a life change is through Jesus Christ and this is why many programs fail because they're educated, and it's educated, and, it's, and that's fine, and that's, and that's good, but they're not introduced to the one that has the power to break the chains of every stronghold and every addiction. It's been said that a person that has no dream is a dangerous person. Some of you in here have lost your dream. They get to the point where there's nothing to live for. And so they simply don't care. They don't care about others. They don't care about themselves. They begin to self-destruct. And because they don't care, they just don't care about who gets hurt along the way. What if we had a place here in the city that people could go and learn to dream again? I can close my eyes and I can see a large building that will one day house our food pantry and clothing closet, maybe even furniture that we could give to people when they get out and they graduate the program to help them get their lives back on track, a building full of rooms where people could stay and rebuild their lives, a medical facility on site to take care of the health needs of the people. Three years ago, I stood up here and I said that within the next 20 years, I believe that God was going to use this church to launch what will be known as the Green Bay Dream Center right here in this city. And for those of you that don't know what a Dream Center is, the focus is simple. A dream center simply focuses on the needs of the city. They, they look at the city and they say, what is the greatest needs in our city? And they provide solutions to the greatest needs of the city. That is what being a neighbor is all about. We're not going to be a church that asks, who is my neighbor? But rather we're going to be a church that asks, who can I be a neighbor to? The first... Dream Center started in the inner city of Los Angeles in 1994 with just a few people. Here's a picture of that building today. And I remember the stories. It's old Queen of Angels Hospital. 
And I remember the stories of when they bought that. It was a complete ragtag, completely torn down, not even usable. And they took ownership of the building, and over the next 15 to 18 years, whatever it was, slowly by slowly, they raised enough money to finish the first floor, and then the second floor, and then the third floor, and then the first, first floor, fourth floor. It, was, it wasn't an overnight thing. It took time. And now today, that was the first one. The Dream Center has now grown to more than 250 worldwide locations. And the success rate of the people that graduate these programs, it's off the chart. Why? Because only God has the power to change a life. For instance, listen to this. It's noted that in the area of L.A. where that building was planted, within the first few years, I think it was the first five years, the crime rate in that area It's the Echo Park area. Those of you that know L.A. know this. The crime rate in that area dropped by, this isn't like the police records, more than 70%. When the Dream Center in North Charleston, South Carolina launched roughly uh, 14 years ago, the USA Today had them listed as the seventh most dangerous city in the nation. Today they're ranked 65th. And the city officials not the Dream Center, the city officials say it's largely because of the Dream Center. That is what revival looks like. Revival is when the city block changes because the power of God is so strong that lives are radically transformed and set free. In 1998, George Bush visited the Dream Center and he called it a model for faith-based organizations. It's a model that really works. It's a model that really transforms a city, but it's also a model that takes a tremendous amount of sacrifice and a tremendous amount of work. So three years I stood before you and I asked you to pray. I asked you to pray that God would put pieces into the place for a dream center here in this city. A center that I believe will, God will use to bring great hope and healing to this area. I asked you to pray as I knew that it was a miracle to pull off and I was a bit overwhelmed at the time and guess what, the wheels on this thing now have started to turn. I, th- I thought we'd be 15 years into this before I'd ever see anything come to fruition. Do you know that there are other people here in this city that have been praying for a resource like this for years? There are people in this, in this city and other churches that have been praying for this for years. They just didn't know what it would be called but they've seen it. They've seen the ministry and the healing of the people of this great city. And God has started to bring us together now just by chance, (laughs) by miracle. But you started to pray, pray with me. And today I am pleased to announce that about a month ago, our church was given the green light from the Dream Center Network to launch our very own Green Bay Dream Center. We have the green light to move forward. It's a miracle. And that's exciting, and I know it's exciting, but I I say that to say this. Please continue to pray, because getting the green light's a very small part of this. There's a lot that needs to happen for this to come to pass. That's why I say when I preach this message, I'm preaching this by faith. I don't know how it's going going to happen. And I noticed that once I was given the green light, once I was given permission, there was a weight that seemed to come upon me at that time I felt the weight of this thing because to run to try to launch something of this scale and to run a church at the same time it's going to be a bit of a stretch for me so I just ask you as a church to pray for favor 
pray for God connections, pray for God ideas. This is what I'm fasting for specifically heading into the new year when we do that 40-day fast. This is specifically what I'm praying for because we have the, we have the green light. There's a few hoops we gotta, we got to jump through, but we're going to get through those and we're going to get this thing up and going. This is going to be a lot of hard work. Now listen, we could just sit back. What our church is doing right now in the, in the community, we could just sit back, we could hit cruise control and we could just say, ah, just let someone else do it. But remember the message from a couple weeks ago on training leaders? Somebody has to step forward and take the initiative. If we're going to see this come to pass, a group of people has to decide, I'm going to step forward and I'm going to make a difference. And that's going to be this church. We're going to take the initiative. We're going to pay the price because our neighbors are hurting. We have neighbors right now that are in pain. We're not going to ignore it. We, by the grace of God, we're going to find solutions and we're going to watch the hand of God change our city. Can I have you bow your heads and close your eyes? Sam, if you could come back up to this, at this point. Father, I just want to thank you. Thank you, God, for this vision. Thank you, God. I know it looks overwhelming. It looks impossible, but you, you yourself said, Jesus, that with God nothing is impossible. And so, God, today we, just, we stand as a church before you with faith. And one day we see this building. One day I can see these people going in and, and coming out with a new kick in their step. They've been delivered. They've been set free. They have hope. They've learned to dream again. Not because of something fancy we teach, but because the power of God has transformed them. God, just as you've done a work in my life, God, I could just see it now. The, 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 and, and other people in this room, God, the miracles that are in this room, Lord, you're not done yet. And I'm believing, God, that one day this city, Green Bay, is going to be a hub for revival in our nation And it's going to be a place where people in other cities will say, I know where I can send you to get hope, to get help. So God, we just want to thank you today. And we just, I lay this vision down at your feet. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than all of us together. And God, we surrender it to you. And we thank you, God. You've already started the miracles. You've already started it moving. And I know you'll commit, you'll see it come to pass in your time. So we thank you for it in Jesus' name.